Hi folks, you find me in London once again. I'm on tour. Uh, I'm actually standing at the base of Cleopatra's Needle on London's Victoria Embankment. Cleopatra's Needle, of course, being a monument originally from Egypt, brought here to London in Victorian times in 1877. Basically, I'm going around London searching for places that are sy symptomatic of any connection between ancient Egypt and the British Empire because the theme for this episode is the life and work of the Victorian novelist H.R. Haggard and in particular his connections with ancient Egypt, something which was tremendously important to him in his life and his writing. Now, I've always been fond of this spot. I used to come here often on my days off if I was traveling around London looking for places that had some connections to the occult because to me personally, it is connected, this particular monument is connected to a couple of fictitious pieces of Victoriana that I associate with the weird. Now, the first one is the novel Pharos the Egyptian from 1899 by the Australian novelist Guy Boothby. It's about this kind of um, Dracula-like figure, I suppose you might call him. He's a mysterious ancient uh, Egyptian priest uh, who is found here at this very spot at the base of Cleopatra's Needle at the beginning of the novel. The Forrester, the narrator of the novel, finds this mysterious figure cackling evilly as a man is drowning in the River Thames, perhaps because he has somehow tricked this man or mesmerized him into jumping in. And from there, things only get even stranger, which you will know if you're a fan of that particular novel. Um, perhaps more well-known these days is the use that the writer Alan Moore makes of Cleopatra's Needle in his absolutely epic uh, graphic novel From Hell um, from 1988 and a few years after that as well. So the novel, of course, um, being begun at the centenary of the Jack the Ripper murders, being that that's what it's mostly about, but the novel is well known for its infamous chapter four, where the main character, William Withy Gull, who is the physician in ordinary to Queen Victoria, who was a real historical, he was a real historical figure, but in chapter four, he goes on a pretty epic tour of London, where he holds forth on the so both real and imagined and quasi-legendary occult history of London. And my goodness, that, that story is worth reading just for chapter four alone and for it's been many years since i've planned on carrying out this tour in real life but i don't know if i will ever have the time to do such a thing it's it's rather rather an undertaking however i have the book here in front of me it's, it's a tome but i brought it with me and i'm going to read you what william withy gull or at least uh, moore's fictitious version of him says to his coachman netley as he's giving his occult lecture on the history of london and he stands right here at the base of cleopatra's needle most of this is is fairly true though with a, a sprinkling of, of drama uh, he says few symbols match this stone in potency carved 1500 years before christ's birth and raised at heliopolis by thutmes etched with hieroglyphic prayers that Atom, Egypt's sun god, might increase his sovereignty. Removed to Alexandria in 12 BC, it fell, lay sand-bound till this century, when England claimed it and endeavoured to transport it home. The cart that bore it to the docks in Alexandria collapsed, spilling the obelisk into an undiscovered prehistoric tomb. Weeks later, it was extricated, placed aboard a ship, which promptly sank Months passed. The obelisk was rescued, placed inside a floating cylinder that tugs might bring it to England. Near Biscay, fearful storms arose. 200 tons of granite almost dropped the tugs to hell before they cut it loose. 
six seamen lost their lives. And uh, this is more or less true. The, the, this particular monument did have a stormy, dramatic and indeed fatal history in getting it uh, from Egypt to right here in London. So this has always stood out to me as a, a, a massive symbol of the connection between ancient Egypt and its place in the imagination of Victorian England uh, at the time that H.R. Haggard was writing. So hopefully that will operate as a pretty interesting intro to this episode. You're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. Hi folks, this is Wide Atlantic Weird. I'm Kean. We are still a podcast about why people believe weird things. We're still trying to be critical but not cynical about all matters relating to the strange. However, one thing that has changed is through the mysteries of time and space. The Cabin in the Woods, from where I record, is no longer coming to you from the wilds of West Cork. It is now coming to you from a secret location somewhere in the sunny southeast. So yes, there have been some changes behind the scenes, and I've had a little time in getting used to a new place and a new job, but really that's all I'm going to say about that for now because we have far too many other things to get to. I assure you that very little else around here is going to change. Now, this episode is all about H.R. Haggard and his relationship with Egypt. My guest for this, I am absolutely thrilled to say, is a returning one. It is Lauren the Gothic Bookworm. Uh, I cannot think of a better person to talk about this topic with. I am all about uh, the 19th century. I am all about Victorian Gothic. I am all about the obsession uh, that people at this time and writers at this time had with particular ideas relating to ancient Egypt. And I'm a huge fan of Haggard and his adventure fiction myself. So I cannot wait to learn more things about this talking to Lauren. As always, folks, you can reach out and get in touch online on Twitter. I am at Strange Ireland. I promise you I am the least controversial person on Twitter. All I pretty much do is share cool, creative things that my friends or uh, friends of the show are doing. Pretty much 90% of what I do. Um, on Instagram, I am Irish underscore cryptid underscore dude and as always you can help out the show over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wide atlantic by chucking a few shekels my way which i will use to drink coffee and buy more books to make the show even better that's honestly what happens to that coffee money folks so this month i want to say big thanks to a few folks who have done that already thanks to emmett and thank you to natasha and thank you to the person going under the name Lucy slash Hushabai slash Mira. So big thanks to all you folks for supporting the show, keeping me in books. I've just bought a copy of Saucers, Spooks and Kooks by Adam Gorightly based on a recommendation in 40 and Times. And man, that, that magazine keeps me, keeps my shelves creaking. I'll say that for nothing. I want to say thanks to Charles Paxton for sending me on really a, a ton of great material that and papers he's written about um, sea serpents and some stuff to do with the Loch Ness Monster as well. I was specifically interested in um, a, an article he wrote in 2015 about the connections between the early Loch Ness Monster sightings of the 1930s and the movie King Kong. 
you've probably, long-time listeners will know that I often make that comparison as a kind of a go-to example for how I think about the way culture influences sightings of, of strange phenomena. Um, Paxton's article, I, this is not new news, it's from 2015, but I had been aware of it for some time but not been able to get the details of it. And I've used that story often over the years and I suppose I want to issue some extra information, maybe even a correction on that because his article is quite convincing uh, and just takes a look at the timeline of those early sightings and when the film came out and how likely or unlikely it was that this influenced the version of the creature that we now have. I recorded quite a long section where I broke down all of those early sightings into a timeline and it got very messy very quickly and I don't, this is not the place for it um, and I know that we have listeners who know their Loch Ness Monster trivia and I just don't have time to get into that at the moment. Suffice it to say that it all hinges on this early sighting by George Spicer and his wife in I think July, late July of 1933 where he records a land sighting of a creature with a long neck. Initially, the language he uses when he talks to the Inverness Courier is, is like, he says it's like a dragon or a prehistoric creature. We don't know whether he had seen the film King Kong at this point. He doesn't mention it. The film has just come out that spring in London and then a little bit later in the bigger cities of of Scotland. Uh, he is from London, so it's possible that he has seen it, but we don't know. It's not for sure until the following year when Rupert Gould publishes a book called The Loch Ness Monster and Others in that May that we get his interview with the Spicers where they definitively compare the creature that they saw to the Brontosaurus. That's what I want to call it anyway, because it makes it sound like an old-timey dinosaur, though I have seen it referred to as a Diplodocus or Diplodocus in other places. The strangely carnivorous swamp-dwelling Brontosaurus from King Kong, and ever after that connection is made. The problem is that we don't know whether they saw the film and made this connection themselves prior to Gould's interview with them, which I think was November of 1933 and the other problem is that in between their initial sighting and their interview with Gould there's a couple of months there when ideas uh, about the Loch Ness Monster comparing it explicitly to prehistoric creatures and to plesiosaurs specifically have started showing up in newspapers in quite a few places so it's very it's very very difficult to say that there is quite a direct line between the film and the sighting and that's uh, I'm just going to leave it there for now. Some other fun things I've been reading about this month. Well, not long ago, I spoke with Eddie Guimont on our episode about the day the Earth stood still. And I was wondering about the meme of the the canonical uh, flying saucer landing on the White House lawn. And I do think that probably for most people, this comes from that film. I'm sure that was the first time it was in wide circulation. But I have found an earlier science fiction story where this happens. It's called Morning Star. It's written by Robert Spencer Carr. Uh, it was published in the Saturday Evening Post on December 6th, 1947, and it's kind of like a Cold War parable where uh, a weird egg-shaped UFO lands explicitly on the White House lawn and another one lands uh, at the Kremlin and hijinks ensue, Cold War hijinks ensue, let's just say that. However, worth mentioning that I've been reading a lot about this guy, Robert Spencer Carr, who's a seems like a pretty fundamental figure in the history of UFO culture and flying saucer thought and um, he's he's kind of key to a lot of things so it, not only did he write interesting you know pulp science fiction back in the 40s but he, he went on for decades contributing in various ways to UFO lore he kind of re recirculates the old crashed flying saucer stories from that had been a thing in the 50s you know specifically the 
the Aztec New Mexico Frank Scully hoax thing. He starts talking about that again in about 1974. And he, you know, has all these elements about, oh, the crash saucer was taken to a secret military base. And he starts using the phrase Hangar 18 to describe the location where it was taken at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And uh, this might be one of the earliest times that people start calling it Hangar 18. I, I don't know if it existed prior to this. He's certainly important in propagating that particular term anyway. And then later on, oh, he gets mixed up in this thing called Operation Lure, which is kind of vaguely contactee-ish in that he believes the aliens are really positive and we have to have this really powerful, spiritual, positive meeting with them and therefore we should um, we should build a structure or a base on top of a giant mountain and have fake flying saucers there and welcome them and they will come down to us and it will be wonderful. And if that reminds you of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the film, it probably should. And I'm slightly ashamed that it didn't occur to me <laughs> that this guy might have been an influence on the climax of that film. And my reading on this guy comes from the blog The Saucers That Time Forgot, which I'm sure serious UFO fans are already aware of. But for everybody else, I highly, highly recommend you check it out for serious deep dives on the history of flying saucer culture. My beer for this episode is Malting's Red Ale from Sullivan's Brewing, right in the middle of Kilkenny City. It's a classic ruby ale with deep malt combining rich biscuit and gentle caramel notes. And I will say it is a lovely, pleasing red colour as well. And that's all I have really for the intro this time, folks. I'm going to get right into my chat with Lauren the Gothic Bookworm, all about H.R. Haggard and Egypt. Hope you like it. Great, Lauren, thanks for coming back. Thank you so much for having me back. I'm very excited. <laughs> Last time we spoke, it was about um, Egyptian mummy, mummy pe- mummified people, <laughs> what have you, yes. in uh, in largely Victorian era fiction, Edwardian fiction. Um, this time we're focusing on one writer from that period. We're going to talk about H.R. Haggard, Henry Ryder Haggard, uh, someone I've long been fascinated by, and I, I just know that you've got a tremendous amount of <laughs> new stuff here. Uh, that I probably won't have known before. So I'm excited about this. Uh, Lauren, how do you uh, describe yourself in your work? You're very creative. You have a lot of different irons and fires. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm Lauren, but you may know me as the Gothic Bookworm. So I'm a PhD student and I'm focusing on the treatment and perceptions of mummies in the 19th century. And I specifically look at travel narratives, mummy pits, visual culture, mummy unwrapping parties and mummies in museums, just all, all the mummies. <laughs> um, I'm the co-founder and co-chair of ISI, the International Society for the Study of Egyptomania. Uh, I created and edit my newsletter, The Anatomy Shelf, uh, bringing you the latest news and articles on the body in history, literature and art. I'm accepting submissions, so please get in contact with me. Um, I'm also a Gothic and horror journalist, and I've appeared in a variety of publications, reviewing books, interviewing authors and writing articles. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Gothic Bookworm, and I also created and I run the page on Instagram Mummy Mania Mondays and on Twitter Mummy Mania Facts so please come get in touch and talk about mummies. <laughs> Amazing I'll, I'll put links to some of that stuff in, in the notes uh, so you can check that stuff out especially I think the anatomy shelf and uh, Mummy Mania are, are things I think fans or listeners of the show uh, mm. will enjoy. So 
Um, we're this is something this work on Haggard. It's it's more than just podcast fodder for you. This is something bigger. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Um, Haggard's the reason that I had to completely change my PhD. Basically, um, I'm blaming him. Um, I wasn't going to have too much on private collections. Um, kind of one particular person focus, and then. I, got, I, I loved Haggard's fiction, but the more I actually read about him, I thought, no, he's an interesting guy. Um, and I kind of want to make it all about him. So he's now uh, become a lot of my second chapter, uh, kind of with his collections. And then also just his relationship with Egypt and also as a travel writer. And it's not kind of what we expect of Haggard. And he's just a fascinating guy. Tremendous. So I suppose I'll say um, for most people out there who only maybe have a passing familiarity with him and his work, He's most known amongst the general public for writing Victorian era adventure stories set largely in Africa. He's most known for King Solomon's Mines in 1885 and the novel mm-hmm. She um, in 1887, I think is the book version anyway. And then there, there's a Hammer film version of that in the 1960s with Ursula Andress and I suppose the, the phrase she who must be obeyed, which I know people in England of a certain age who still say that. So whether they got it from Haggard or whether they got it from Rumpole of the Bailey, I don't know. <laughs> He's left a mark uh, in, in you know, and, and those ideas from those books kind of play out in Indiana Jones films and other stuff in the 20th century. So, And if people know a little bit about his own life, it's probably that he did spend time in South Africa as a young man during the colonial period, and he did have some experience there. And so he's, he's deeply associated with South Africa, Central Africa, and sort of adventure stories in that area. But we're going to be talking about him in a slightly different context this time. Yes, I'm very excited because it's it's an unusual one. He's done so much uh, in his life and he's kind of dabbled in every kind of literary motif um, that the Victorian and Edwardian period kind of... Um, published so it's it's one of those things where where do you start with him um I mean he's he's an interesting guy and I I think he had a lot to prove to himself as much to other people and I think that's kind of why he's so accomplished I mean he was so he was born on the 22nd of June so his birthday is coming up uh, in 1856 and he was the eighth of ten children but he was the only one who didn't go to a private school uh his father kind of thought well as Robert, uh, Roger Lukter says, you know, he was a dunderhead. <laughs> Apparently, that's what he was considered. Um, he failed his exams uh, into the British Army. He was studying for his exams um, for the British Foreign Office, but got distracted uh, by spiritualism uh, when he was studying. So I just feel as if he was distracted easily, but kind of by the right things, because otherwise we wouldn't have all this amazing, this amazing fiction. <laughs> And he's one of the few like lost adventure fiction kind of people who we kind of understand. So you've got Conan Doyle, who obviously stole a lot from Fawcett, (laughs) (laughs) which I love those episodes, (laughs) by the way. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that was fantastic. Uh, But yeah, and I mean, there is a rumour that the, the pair knew each other as well, but I haven't been able to find anything on that apart from the odd blog post that says that they were in contact. But So yeah, he's, uh, he's a very interesting guy. And I think that he kind of... Egypt found him at the same time as he found Egypt, if that makes sense. He was just obsessed. <laughs> Maybe we'll talk a bit about... So when he was growing up, he had access to um, an, a nearby collection. Um, and yes, this might have been part of what got his imagination going. Yes, it was um, Didlington House, I 
think yeah that's how you pronounce it I hope um it's it's a real shame because it got destroyed in uh, World War II, uh, which is a real big shame. But he was fascinated by it, and his brother Andrew knew exactly how much he was fascinated by it. And Howard Carter also visited that collection as well. So it was a big collection, really big collection. They had all sorts there. They had everything from mummies to rings to um, relics to ev- everything you could kind of want in a tomb. It was it was in that collection. <laughs> So, and one thing we mentioned briefly in the previous episode about mummy fiction was that, according to some sources, at least, well, he, he definitely he owned a mummy briefly that was uh, associated with his brother, who was, I believe, a soldier oh. in Egypt. Maybe we yeah. can briefly cover that. Yeah. So I love this story. And it's one of those where I'm not necessarily hoping to believe it's true. I do think that there is a ring of truth to it. Um, so I first came across this in Roger Luckhurst's book where he mentions the biographer Tom Pocock and he mentions it briefly. And I love the way that he mentions it because it's one of those that it kind of leaves a lot to the imagination. Um, so he kind of says that ooh, when I find it, I'll just mention Luckers book is called The Mummy's Curse and it's well worth your time if anyone out there hasn't read it. It's about so much more than just The Mummy's Curse. It covers a very wide range of, of stuff kind of adjacent to it. Uh, the, the British Empire at the time and sort of Gothic fiction at the end of the Victorian period as well. So well worth your everything leading up to the kind of Tutankhamun curse stuff in the 1920s. It's excellent. <laughs> Thank you. I found it. I found it. So um, yeah, so Pocock says that his brother Andrew uh, seconded to the Egyptian army with the temporary rank um, or uh, colonel. And knowing of Ryder's fascination with Egyptology, he shipped an embalmed encased mummy to him in West Kensington. On arrival, it was placed upright in his study, which I thought was rather unusual, um, (laughs) where on this particular night, he was working late. Next morning, it is said an agitated Haggard announced that the mummy must leave the house immediately and not remain there for another night. Indeed, it must be sent at once to the museum in Norwich Castle wherever else um he would give no reason for his sudden decision but it was said that morning the study was in disarray and gray with mummy dust so it's it's creepy but i can believe that i mean mummies are dusty and maybe it freaked him out i personally would not have a mummy in my house however (laughs) intent the gift was (laughs) um so yeah and uh, look says that Hagar kind of says about this in passing but only when he revisits the mummy at the museum and it's said to be the mummy of Nesmin um but uh, I think it's true personally because there's another rumor that he wrote she during this time very quickly he he produced four novels in 14 months but she was in 6 weeks and uh it just seems a bit too coincidental um, apparently it even freaked out uh, Freud he said that she was terrifying and this is Freud so it, I think it has a grain of truth to it this story so this idea that he was writing the novel while the mummy was in the room with him uh, or in, in his study and that so some of the Egyptological I suppose she she is about a an, an adventure in Africa in in I suppose somewhere in Central Africa uh, but the central character like they find a lost race and and it's led by this woman Aisha and she is her background, she's like thousands of years old and is originally uh, Persian or Arab or something, but she gives this life story that spanned all the great classical civilizations that the Victorians were obsessed with. And there were big connections to Egypt in there, if I recall. Mm. 
very big. There's um, a particular part which I'm actually using it in my thesis because I think it describes it brilliantly, this kind of um, obsession with the other, with ancient Egypt. And it's where she's telling uh, Holly, the, one of the characters, so she, who must be obeyed, is telling one of the characters um, that she is constantly reincarnated because she constantly has this double about her. And when we talk about ancient Egypt, when we talk about the double, we talk about the car. Lots, uh, I've read a couple of things which says Haggard wasn't um, particularly interested in this, but I've also read other contradictory notes that says he was really interested in the concept. And I actually think he was. He talks about it a lot in his um, autobiography. And he's also fascinated. He, he would have loved to have ancient ancestors from Egypt, apparently. And he would love their spirit to be living with him. So I think there's a lot of Egyptian mythology within it. And uh, it's kind of one of those things where you think, I think he put it in just because he really liked it. He, he really liked the history of it. And so he kind of created this story around it. That, that's what I love about it. <laughs> I found a small bit about him in Ronald Hutton's um, Triumph of the Moon. He has a brief bit about um, ah. the religious ideas of, of Haggard. Mm. And he says on, on paper, he was a kind of a standard Victorian Christian. And he, you know, he led the, he led his family in prayers every day and he did things strictly and by the book. But I mean, also he was into, he, he loved this mysticism. As you said, he had a background in, in spiritualism. He came to believe in uh, reincarnation. And as you said, he was obsessed with this idea that maybe he would have had ancestors from the ancient great civilizations he was fascinated by. Maybe even that he was a reincarnation of them. <laughs> so very yeah. complex individual. Yeah, he, he was, I mean... <laughs> The, the other thing as well, especially with um, Rip being religious and faith, he was also really kind of a, he was really worried about what was going to happen after he, after he died. And so he really wanted to be cremated and he even makes a joke about it in his autobiography saying that um, it, it was when he was in Egypt, he said, oh, it, make, it makes a good um kind of poise for cremation because I don't want to be shoved in a box and have people gawk at me for after a thousand <laughs> years. He was really, he was fascinated by the mummies and I mean, we'll, we'll talk about when we went to Egypt, but just on, the, on on this point, he, as much as he was fascinated by them, he didn't want to become a tourist attraction. Um, so he was cremated, which is, I just thought that was really unusual. <laughs> So in his in his time, I mean, one of the reasons why I think the, the the Nesmond mummy story might have truth behind it is because he was known in his time as a, as an Egyptologist, as a person associated with, mm. with his study. Tell me about the the who's who who was who in Egyptology, and what it has. Yeah, to say. so he so he has his own um, own little part in who's who in Egyptology. My good friend Emmett Jackson actually uh, sent uh, this over to me and he did take part in amateur digs uh, apparently which I'm surprised he doesn't talk more about in his autobiography. He kind of mentions them in passing because uh, I think this would have fascinated him. He knew he was an amateur though he didn't ever want to be uh, more than not. He knew he was a writer above all else and um, he has his own um, point in this book because also the Norwich Castle Museum collection uh, as well where he did, uh, he donated so he donated a lot of his um, 
collection there and also Liverpool has a large collection but just it wasn't just a fascination and it wasn't just someone who wanted to go to Egypt and was kind of interested and wrote a lot of fiction he did genuinely care um especially about ancient Egypt he didn't like modern Egypt uh, and I'll come to that as well um but yeah he was one of those people who I think wanted more from this and he put 110% into everything and he, he even has his own place in the who's who in Egyptology he was an amateur Egyptologist really yeah yeah and I, I suppose it makes me think as a amateur person with an interest in, in the history of this time and, and the history of the, this is like the height of the British Empire and people are thinking of themselves as like an inheritors of some of these great civilizations and there are times when they look back at the the Romans and say oh we're like the Romans and then sometimes they're looking back at the Egyptians and, and you know they see these civilizations as the precursors to their own and I suppose for him this is a very loaded for him to, to consider ancient Egypt is a very loaded thing and has a lot to say about the time in which he's living himself yeah and because he was obsessed uh, with ancient Egypt obsessed and passionate uh, I should say um and when he went to Diddlington house and saw these objects and his brother knew how much he loved ancient Egypt and I mean I love that he thought oh I know what Haggard will want, he'll want a mummy. Um, so yeah, I do think it was a really big thing for him to do. And he always wanted to kind of write something more. And he, I mean, he, he really wanted to write adventure fiction. And it was after reading Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island, which is one of my favourite books. So I can understand that Haggard went, I want to do this. And it was his brother who convinced him, you should be writing this sort of book. So King Solomon's Mines came out and I think that just kind of ignited something in him. Um, in his autobiography, he says, oh, I went to Egypt for a, ho for a holiday and, and discovered uh, so much more. And I'm like, you never went there for a holiday. You knew what you were doing. You wanted to see everything. Um, so, yeah, it was it was really. It, yeah. Tremendous. So he has his, his early success. Or he has his first successes, big successes mm. with King Solomon's Mines. And I mean, you read in most places, this is considered to be like a sort of a, a birth of what we now call adventure fiction. Mm. There were precursors, but this is kind of knocks it into the form that we would recognize it now, mm. I suppose. Um, and he has great success with this. This allows him to, this gives him the money, I suppose, to make mm. his first trips to Egypt. Uh, and what, yeah. what does he find? What does he find when he gets there? Uh, lots of things. So this trip was kind of interesting for him. Um, so he was going to take his wife with him, but they had very young children at the time. So he decided not to. Uh, when he got, well, I'll, I'll start by saying the journey. So he first went to the Louvre and he really enjoyed looking at the mummies in the Louvre. And then while they were traveling through Italy, he lost his luggage. And this was the start of one of those things that just seemed to always happen to him. His daughter, um, who also did a biography, uh, Lilius or Lila Lilius, I think you pronounce it. She actually says it just became known for Ryder to lose his luggage in absolutely <laughs> every trip that we went on after that. Um, so uh, I think that was his own little mummy's curse. Uh, so he went, uh, and then he went to Alexandria. Um, and this trip was really interesting because when he got there as well, apparently people knew he was going to be there. And when he was on the boat, he couldn't believe that people were either reading She or King Solomon's Minds. Oh, wow. Which is amazing. I mean, I, I love King Solomon's Minds. I think it's great. It really, 
um surprised me as well when the league of extraordinary gentlemen came oh, out and and alan quatermain was in it as one yeah. of the big figures because it's yeah. one of those that i never considered to be gothic when i first read it and then as i got more into gothic fiction i was like no it has all these things in and uh, yeah Oh gosh, that's an interesting film. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, for anyone who knows it only from the film, the 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 books, obviously, uh, Alan Moore mm. really expands on the 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 world of of Haggard, and like I still find like he wrote so many books, and as I I mm. slowly get new ones occasionally because there's just so many there and they're not easy to get. Um, I'll still notice things that I recognize from the old Lee mm. comics where Alan Moore really leans into the expanded universe yeah. of Alan Quatermain. <laughs> He really does. He just takes it from everywhere. Um, yeah. How can you not? <laughs> so, yeah, he was quite kind of surprised. He was famous by this point. Um, but I don't think he realised how much of an effect it would have on. And she is still now one of the uh, biggest selling books of all time. It's uh, still, I think I have a title. Yeah. So, it, yeah, it is. I fact checked that one. I'm sure it was. So, I love She. I really do. Yeah. It's not my favourite one of Haggard's, though. Ooh. It's oh, not. Do tell. No. Do tell. Oh, it's, it's Cleopatra. Okay. Has to be. So, <laughs> which we will talk about. <laughs> okay. So, what happens next on his, on his holiday? His not holiday? Oh, well, he he's one of these people who kind of wants to do everything so he wants to go into mummy pits he wants to go to the museum um in one of his later trips he does meet howard carter as well that's an interesting relationship that's a later trip um he's just so fascinated by these mummies he met uh emil i think it's bruch i don't know how you pronounce that either um but they were the rediscoverer of the huge royal cache uh, in Deir el Bari, I think that's how you pronounce it as well, um, and where they found all the mummies uh, of Ramesses II and Seti, they, they found a, a big royal cache uh, of mummies because what had happened was um, the Egyptian priests had decided to take all these mummies out of their tombs because they were just being robbed and some of them were being uh, state sanctioned robbed as well so it wasn't even tomb robbers at this point it was actually a political movement so they decided to keep all the mummies and put them in this giant cache and Ramesses was um, Haggard was completely obsessed and he he speaks about when he saw Ramesses and he says it's he, he, just the most fascinating thing to him. Um, and again, that's when he says, but I don't want to end up like that. So please cremate me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, tremendous. And in his writing, he like he both condemns this grave robbing and he, he says that it's um, this is just for mm. reading Lockhurst. He, he says how he condemns the, this practice and he thinks it's disrespectful to the dead. But he's also collecting he's collecting whatever he can himself from whoever oh, will sell yes. it to him <laughs> oh yes so i mean in in his autobiography he says how would we like it if the kings and queens of westminster were dug up after thousands of years and put on display however it didn't stop him from <laughs> getting two egyptian molar teeth and bringing them back to his wife i mean nothing says i love you like dental souvenirs uh, <laughs> he, he wouldn't have a mummy in his house but he'll have the teeth um yeah, and he was he was a very big collector though of everything. Um, Harry Howe, who did the Strand interview, goes into his house and he kind of describes it as a cabinet of curiosities. I feel really sorry for Harry because I'm sure he's an absolutely excellent writer. And it reads brilliantly, but all I can see is just him wandering around the house, going, "I'm an 
H. Ryder Haggard's house and oh my gosh isn't he dashing with his moustache and look at all the cool things he has um so he's proper fangirl but I'd have been the same to be fair this is when he lives in um, Hammersmith is that right uh, I've got it up here it's a it's a fantastic interview and it is available online for free as well to download um Ditchingham in Norfolk Ditchingham and he says you know he, he he says that he's the creator of the immortal woman she and there is positively little known about mr haggard who perhaps one might describe as a country gentleman by profession and a novelist by accident suggestive of the literary man literature he's just i mean he's <laughs> he's absolutely amazed uh, by him and his house and he he has a big collection he has all sorts lookhurst mentions it as well um that he has um Egyptian crossbows and all this and rings, lots of rings, which obviously feature in she and Smith and the Pharaohs. And he's obsessed. <laughs> Let's get to um, Cleopatra. So that's a couple, is that a couple of years after his first trip? Uh, yes, he started writing Cleopatra pretty much soon after his first trip. So his first trip was in 1887 and Cleopatra came out in 1889 and it came out serially first and then as a published book as well. So uh, Cleopatra, he was really inspired by his time in Egypt to... Um, actually kind of create this romance and he says at the beginning of Cleopatra this isn't supposed to be historically accurate and he's like no we didn't think huge great big bat ghosts were supposed to be Haggard <laughs> um, but it's an ancient Egyptian romance and it's set in ancient Egypt so there's a fantastic part at the beginning of it um, I'll just read out a little bit of it so this is the introduction to it and it, it really kind of lands the adventure fiction for me so this is in the recesses of the desolate Libyan mountains that lie behind the temple and city of Abydus, the supposed burying place of the Holy Osiris, a tomb was recently discovered, among the contents of which the papyrus rolls whereupon this story is written. So it's very typical of Shi, where they find obviously the shirt and they follow the directions, um, they follow this map. This is they find a story written on ancient papyri. And it's one of those stories that I think people may have looked over because she was so big uh, at that point when Haggard wrote it he said it was the best thing he ever wrote and he dedicated it to his mother and it was really sad in the end because his mother died not long after so he he says I dedicated Cleopatra to my mother because I thought it is the best book I have ever written or was likely to write and, and then he says although since then I have modified that opinion in favor of one or two other that came after it so he's like no 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 I've, I've even bettered myself but he says um and then says he got a letter from her from his mother and it was the last ever letter that he received from her before she passed away and I love this bit where she says because it was illustrated as well. I have not thoroughly looked at the illustrations, but see that they are very much more to be liked than those in the illustrated news. Thank you greatly for your excellent work, my dear son. Um, I think that's adorable. And is, so, is, is that a, is she is that a, is she slagging him comparing it to the illustrated news? No, I, was, I thought that it made me. Laugh. It's like their illustrations are good, but I think I think I'm sure it was considered a slightly unsalubrious publication yeah at the time. <laughs> yeah it's one of those that I think she was trying to be polite about it <laughs> yeah. she seems that way I mean um 
apparently he opened a letter from his father and he says that his mother opened and looked at the book not without tears oh, so it's an interesting one and um yeah, it, it's kind of sad because I think it's it is he really was proud of this book. He was really, really proud of it. And um, he he says here that Cleopatra ran serially through the Illustrated London News before its appearance in book form. Editing key in here. Victorian enthusiasts will note that I have here accidentally confused the Illustrated London News with the Illustrated Police News, which was, of course, considered quite, uh, quite trashy in its day. It's because I was trying to fix a small problem on Zoom. That's my excuse, and I'm sticking to it. It is a work that has found many friends, but my rec recollection is that, as my mother foresaw, it was a good deal attacked by the critics who were angry that after Shakespeare's play, I should dare to write of Cleopatra. <laughs> <laughs> so I think he's been, I mean, he should be a bit smug because it's excellent. Um, and, you know, spoiler alert, there's all sorts in it. But what I like about it is that he actually was inspired by his own kind of adventures in Egypt um, and that a lot of the scenes in Cleopatra were taken from his his own travels so there's one here where um, he actually goes back to Egypt he went to Egypt four times he goes back and uh, this is where he said 18 years later I revisited the tombs and I found them much easier to access and illuminated with electric light uh, but these conditions didn't produce quite the same effect upon me when I was first there I remember struggling down one of them and he says I think it was that of the great seti uh, lit by dim torches and remember that millions of bats must have been beaten away um, I reincarnated them all in the great bat that was the spirit which haunted the pyramid where Cleopatra and her lover sought the treasure of the pharaoh so I think it's really interesting that he kind of included this really gothic scene which happened to him um, I'm not sure it's in nature of bats to kind of fly into people's hair like they're very intelligent creatures it's, it's, and I just see well, these it's a well-known myth <laughs> yeah is it yeah, <laughs> that's what I wanted myth. to ask you with your background like did this happen <laughs> was Haggard like zhuzhing it up a little bit um what was he doing <laughs> oh but uh yeah there's another uh story as well which is quite it it's it's one that I think could have happened uh, to Haggard. I'll just find it. So it's in Pocock's uh, book. And it was when he was in Egypt, but I don't know. I really don't know if this is real or not. Um, so he went to the tomb of Seti where he says, oh, I think it was the great Seti. And he's going down the passageways and there's uh, frescoes of flying vultures into chambers painted with visions of the sky. So he's really interested in that. And then he says, flocks of bats flickered above the flames of the guide's torches. So he says he's a little bit creeped out by that. Um, but then he went into one of the tombs at Aswan and it occurred to him that the original mummified occupant of the tomb had been joined by victims of the plague so he then got scared because he thought that plague spores could last longer. So he started to shout and scream, saying that he wanted to get out. Uh, but then the vibration of his voice dislodged the sand above and began to pour through the cracks. And he thought he was going to get buried alive. <laughs> oh, goodness. So, yeah. So, I mean, his life kind of reads like an adventure novel. I know that was said of Belzoni, but I think Haggard deserves that title as well. <laughs> 
so yeah and um he said and he wrote a letter home to uh, his wife and it just says my head is full of Cleopatra for which I have a very strong plot um so he feels quite proud of himself like after going to Egypt and, and wanting to uh, to write it but it's uh, people get well someone gets mummified alive in the novel um that's making a bit there's a gorgeous illustration um you can see all the illustrations for free on visual haggard as well it's a fantastic uh, website and uh, there's a gorgeous one of the bats swooping in in the tomb um it's excellent and he had a very good relationship with his illustrators as well um the two big ones and uh he wanted to make sure that some scenes were particularly interest, uh, illustrated uh, within the serialization and the novel as well. So I love the fact that he, he probably turned around and said, I want the bat, you have to draw the big bat. <laughs> So he wrote two stories after his um, 1904 visit to Egypt. He wrote The Way of the Spirits and Smith and the Pharaohs. And I much prefer Smith and the Pharaohs. Um, it's one of those stories, again, which is adventure fiction mixed with the Gothic. But it also did something else for Haggard as well. It was kind of a justification for his actions. I mean, he was a problematic person. He had ties with colonialism. And, you know, we can, you know, we do have to talk about that and uh, challenge it. But this story, I think Haggard, there, there was a changing scope of colonialism and attitudes towards it during the start of the 20th century. And I think Hackard was kind of recognising this. And this story was his redemption story, I think, because it's a lovely story. It's completely free to read on Project Gutenberg. And I would really recommend it. It's about 30 pages. But if you read one thing, I would recommend this because it just sums him up. So uh, Smith he is fascinated by this mask this not it's not the real mask it's a, a casting of the mask of a queen mommy and he gets so enamored with the face of this ancient egyptian woman that he goes and tries to find her so he travels to the museum where he sees the actual mask and then he manages to find her tomb but all is left in the tomb is a hand and some rings because her body has been burnt so in addition to trying to sell the rings and also want to keep it for his own, he ends up being locked in the museum one night and he ends up trying to sleep in the ship. He tries to sleep in a sarcophagus. He, I mean, of all the places that you think, let's go to sleep in a museum. Okay, let's just do that. But while he's there, um, all these spirits of ancient Egyptian people so we're talking royalty so Cleopatra makes an appearance as she does uh descend upon the museum and they kind of have a little trial for Smith to say why you know it's he kissed the hand basically the only object that was there was her hand and he kissed the hand and that was seen as terrible and he should be cursed and put to death and everything else like and what it turns out to be is he actually sees the spirit of Queen Mami and he's completely enamored with her and she says oh you're the reincarnation of my lover so take the hand kiss it do whatever you know and uh you know and he has the rings and at the end it's was it a dream or was it not a dream and Lookhurst does say that this is Haggard's justification that no 
plundering tombs and taking objects is seen as a passionate love thing, not as a colonialist thing. So it does make me laugh with that because I feel like he was writing it and go, job done. I'm liked by the people again. Um, I can see attitudes are changing and in the future they'll look back and go, no, he was just really passionate, which he was, but that doesn't make it right. (laughs) Did you say that was 1904 for Smith and the... No, he, uh, he that came out serially in 1912 to 13, but it was oh. inspired by the trip uh, in 1904. And he took his daughter, Angela, I believe, on that trip, which uh, is interesting to me as well, because it's, you know, I, I think that he was just so desperate to get his kids into ancient Egypt as well. <laughs> He's like, come with me to the Nile. Um, and, the severed yeah. hand of a, of, a, of a queen kind of reminds me of, you know, uh, Stoker's Julius Evans, yes. parents, but that's quite a bit earlier, and it also reminds me of mm. weird stories that um, you know Cairo Louis Hamon he, he used to tell stories yes. as well. But again, I yeah. Yeah, he wrote those long after the fact and inserted himself into everybody's spooky Egypt story, as far as I can tell. <laughs> I think mummy body parts just make an appearance randomly in fiction, yeah. but I think we should connect them all at some point. I mean, you've got um, you've got the mummy's foot as well, and uh, yeah, I mean, what's interesting is when Stoker wrote the jewel of seven stars he had to publish another ending because it was too freaky for people it was scaring people and the ending the new ending came out 1912 which was when smith and the pharaoh started so i think yeah. there is a good connection there. <laughs> just just saying <laughs> let's say something about his relationship with howard carter okay so i'm glad you said that <laughs> so this is an interesting one and again it works with changing attitudes and I know that Luckhurst opens his chapter on Haggard talking about this so I also found um, a little section in Tom Pocock's work as well and yes it does say that in 1904 he took his eldest daughter Angela on a visit to Egypt his most luxuriant source of invention I love Pocock's way with words um So when the ship finally docked at Port Haggard, who had already been shipwrecked once before, uh, which is another interesting story, uh, confessed, never was I more glad to find myself on land again. So they're still kind of making this ethereal kind of saviorist um, adventure again. So uh, then he met Howard Carter. So this was an interesting relationship because they actually traveled up the Nile Valley uh, by train to Luxor. And that was where he met him. And they spoke about how they were both bewitched by the Egyptian antiquities at Didlington Hall. So Carter was directing an excavation financed by an American millionaire, as you do. And this was a long time before Tutankhamun. And he, he originally went there as an artist. So he's really kind of trying to establish himself as an archaeologist, as an Egyptologist uh, with these tombs in the Theban Hills. And here it says the two men took to one another at once. Haggard, who had felt the place had a strange fascination for me, understood exactly what Carter meant when he declared that he felt a religious feeling in the belly of the king so profound that it appeared almost imbued with a life of its own. So I think because they'd both kind of been there at Didlington Hall like from the start they both got an interest and fascination with it they both really enjoyed each other's company and um so it was a dull windy day when when he wrote um noted Haggard and I mean Carter isn't the best documentarian I have to say um his 
his diaries are very bullet pointy. <laughs> so you get straight to the point, literally. Um, but Haggard kind of writes with more passion. But I think that's kind of interesting because I think both men had the same kind of personality trait. And Kipling as well. You get all these people together. Um, they're one of the same, but not the same. <laughs> so they hit it off immediately. And they, like Carter, Haggard was really shocked to see a lot of these mummies left outside of the entrances of tombs. Uh, so before the removal of mummies, they were kind of seen as rubbish as well. And, and Carter didn't, he, he, he was, he felt a guilt apparently. And he said that, you know, soon the 3000 year of uh, year sleep of its occupant will end. And how should we like our own bodies to be treated with such fascination? And it's one of those concepts that I think, it, I mean, it was rife during this time. There was a huge mummy trade going on, uh, illegal, I should say, but very lucrative. And it's interesting that both Houtgaard and Carter weren't a fan of it. I mean, I've just picked out a couple of quotes here from his uh, biography. I found the cremation quote as well. Uh, the idea seems to be that if you have been dead long enough, your bones are fair prey, all of which to me is a great argument in favour of cremation. <laughs> um, and he talks about Westminster Abbey and the Kings and Queens. And he, he says, often I wonder how dare how we dare to meddle with these hallowed relics, especially now in my age. So he's kind of got this foreboding sense uh, coming from him. And he's, I mean, he, he says that when he was in um, Egypt, you know, he, he saw Sethi and Ramesses and he says, oh, with what veneration did I look upon them? And I, it sounds very much like Howard Carter's What Do You See Wonderful Things mm. um, play. So who knows if that's what the first words were ever said with that tune. We will never know. A <laughs> little bit of an exaggeration, maybe. Is that how do we make this a really good headline? Um, but I think Haggard had the, the passion and he had the expertise to write about it. And that's why I think the relationship's so interesting. And it's a shame that I haven't managed to find even more uh, when they were talking to each other about it because um, it, Haggard says at the end of this tour that he had with Howard Carter, he felt that ancient Egypt was his second homeland and Howard Carter felt that too. And because of that, you know, we have Morning Star, Queen Sheba's Ring, The Way of the Spirit, as we mentioned, and, you know, Smith and the Pharaohs. And I think Smith, it's just a, a kind of thing that I have very much inspired by Howard Carter, I think, his... Hmm. his uh, mannerisms that are described in Smith and the Pharaohs and what he says it seems a very Howard Cartery thing to do so who knows but I think it seems very likely because he said he was inspired to write this after his trip when he met Howard Carter it, it seems that it's um could be a little could be a little nod to him in that story <laughs> yeah that makes a lot of sense I like that and, mm. and so years pass and he returns to Egypt for a final time and yeah. later in life and he meets Howard Carter one last time and everything is he different. Does. Oh, everything's different. It's changed. There's well, personally, I just don't know if, if Haggard is just incredibly petty, bless him, because he wanted to cover the excavation of Tutankhamun for the newspaper. They said no. And then all of a sudden he has a big problem <laughs> with it. Um, 
there is a fantastic uh, quote, and it's actually in Jasmine Day's The Mummy's Curse, Mummy Mania in the English-speaking word, fantastic book. And uh, this quote um, is from Haggard. And uh, it was Sir Henry Ryder Haggard to the editor of The Times. This is in 1923. And it says, Now Tutankhamun may be stripped and laid half naked to rot in a glass case at Cairo, thus exposed. I doubt whether any mummies will last another century. And meanwhile, to be made the butt of the merry jests of tourists. Is this decent? Examine them by all means, but then hide them away forever as we ourselves would be hidden away. I mean, he... <laughs> Oh, he, he doesn't yeah he doesn't play around he, he speaks his mind and he's not happy at all and um as i said you know there were changing attitudes towards this we obviously know that the pharaoh's curse came out of this but haggard is not happy at all about it and then he, he ropes his friend conan doyle into saying that the curse is true he's friends with wallace budge who says he can't possibly comment um <laughs> as, as, just, it, as he always says <laughs> as he was i can't possibly i can neither confirm nor deny the famous <laughs> words um so he ropes all of his buddies into saying there's a and he, he is interested in spiritualism and obviously kipling's sister was a very big medium and you know it, he was you know, invited to the ghost club and he was obsessed with seances and he said, even if they're kind of fake, I still believe in them. So he, he, <laughs> as you do, he said, I believe in the past. So he thought, you know, curse is real. The spirits are going to come back and haunt people. This isn't fair on mummies, completely omitting the fact that he did own a mummy at one point, which he completely yeah. skips over and everything. So his attitude, and he did bring back molar teeth and he's got a house full of stuff he probably shouldn't, you know, spoils of colonialism. Yeah. So, I, yeah. I, I've seen a letter somewhere where he like writes to Kipling complaining about how daft it is that the British people are buying into this curse. So he seems mm. to change, like he wants ancient Egypt to be mystical sometimes. Yeah. But not other but, times. Yeah, I think by the, he was trying to, I think, just gauge as much as he possibly could into people being on his side. So I think it was, yes, the curse is real. They shouldn't be doing this. And then in other in other parts, he kind of contradicts himself and says, no, the curse isn't real. This is just horrible. We shouldn't be doing this to mummies. We want, you know, we should be laying them to rest. Like, how dare people, you know, understand this curse? It's blatant media. I mean, he's he just attacks the papers at that point, I think, because they wouldn't yeah. let him write the article. <laughs> <laughs> and so i suppose he he he's a conservative isn't he he doesn't like the modernization of anything really but particularly the the egypt that he knew before is, is going there's now a nationalism thing happening there uh, British yes. power is, is less and um you know there are motor cars everywhere and he, he doesn't like any of this either i presume yeah, he's not happy at all. I mean, talk about conservative. He did actually try and run for the Conservative Party and lost by 197 votes. So definitely conservative. He hates modern Egypt even more so now that it's come into its own and it's kind of becoming this not magical city anymore. And he doesn't like that. He likes the mystification of it for his own um personal use but he cuts his trip short he's not happy and he says it, it's just not the same anymore as when he went and it, this is a very short space of time uh where when he went it was very very soon before he died actually and there's that i do love the image on his final trip to egypt where he's in um the most amazing uh temple 
and he's just kind of sat there but he looks i mean this is it and we can put it on the thing oh yes he, he is very pondering um but he's so he's in the hall of osiris um and he's 67 at this point and the table at abydos during his final visit to egypt in 1924 so it's it's very close to his death as well because he ended up passing away on the 14th of may in 1925 hmm. so i think it was a very poignant part for him he did want to see egypt again but he was really disappointed in in it and there's only a very very short uh, section in the private diaries of uh, sir henry ryder haggard where he just basically says it's not the same and i'm not happy about it hmm. um so yeah <laughs> it's very sad uh, must be the period as well where howard carter is like fighting with the egyptian antiquities oh, department yes. and <laughs> there's a lot of bad blood going around oh there is it's turned kind of into a battlefield of egos and that i mean that's one of the things with howard carter it was he he said we need the mummies for science and we need to know for history but really he wanted the fame um you know he he even bought into the whole kind of canary story um i think he even uh, yeah the, the canary curse story he that there was even a, a story that he wrote about it to kind of factor into it mm. so he so there's all this talk of him not liking the curse but it really kind of contradictory and hypocritical because he did buy into it with the media and it did make a name for himself um very interesting that it's the 100 year anniversary this year um when Tutankhamun and I only just learned that a local primary school is actually doing the discovery of Tutankhamun as their end of school play so oh, brilliant. <laughs> we've got a modern Egyptomania upon us but he's still known for that and you know 100 years later we're still talking about it mm. and uh, I mean it was a huge huge thing for Egyptology uh, the discipline and it, it was well that 100 years marked the 100 years since Champollion deciphered hi hieroglyphics so it's one of those weird coincidences um that you just never know but yeah it's a battlefield at this point in the 1920s with the Egyptian government and Carter's not happy and Haggard's complaining to the paper um <laughs> <laughs> how dare they let's talk about um so after he passes on 1925 you, you said mm -hmm. um he leaves behind a pretty impressive collection and i think some of the some of the artifacts in there are maybe worth worth commenting on yeah so um a lot of them are currently uh, in norwich castle museum and in liverpool museums one of which is the bez ring um so he he well he loved his rings he even gifted kipling an ancient egyptian ring um and it's in uh, this interview as well, this interviewer at the Strand magazine who it's a wonderful interview, but it's one of those things where you just really have to go quite far down to get to his point. Bless him. Um, he's trying very, very hard to kind of create this image of Haggard as this hero, but also as this he's just a huge fan i just love it um so he says you know the landings are lined with many portraits of norfolk uh there's huge there's a huge bull's head uh belonged to an animal shot by mr fred jackson the explorer uh but there's also uh, a quaint old cabinet uh which reads ank best best ank and that's the living best or best the living um and it was mended because it broke uh because he says mr haggard wore it for about a year but it unfortunately broke it while getting out of a cab um <laughs> queen queen 
<laughs> just as you do. Uh, Queen Taya must have worn it uh, for all her life and it shows signs of constant use. Um, it says, then Mr. Haggard takes from his finger a signet ring he always wears. It was found at Deir el-Bahari. Its uh, red stone is believed uh, to chronicle the portrait of Ramesses the Great, the pharaoh of the oppression, with whom with whose uh, coffin it was discovered. So he has this collection of rings and they are ancient Egyptian and they are currently in the museums. You can go and see them. I think one of them is in, uh, is under kind of, I don't want to say under wraps because that's a really bad mummy pun. <laughs> it's behind closed doors. Um, but the museum is fantastic. Uh, I have been there. I'm looking forward to going to see the rings at some point as well, because I would love to include them. But there's a wonderful image as well of uh, Haggard when he's writing, but he's positioned his hand so much. So it's a bit like an engagement photo shoot. You know, he has this ring on his finger. It's like, oh, yes, I'm writing. But look, look at this giant rock on my hand. Um, <laughs> And obviously rings uh, make an appearance in his stories as well. And some of the very early editions of She, which I managed to get for an absolute steal on eBay, <laughs> have the imprint of uh, the ring uh, with the hieroglyphs on. Oh. So, yeah, there's so many things. Um, also, Scattered Finds is a really good book uh, and it's open access as well. And that talks about uh, the Shabtis as well, uh, which were in Norwich. So he had a collection of them. Um, See, he was just a big collector of everything. He he wanted everything and he got everything and including things he didn't want, like a mummy. <laughs> and it seems like he, he, he was fond of having a physical artifact to mm. base some of his stories on. And if there wasn't a real one, he would manufacture one. And, and I'm thinking of the is it the shirt of Amanartis from from She which yes. was a physical thing that he was that is that part of that it collection? was it's in Norwich it's in Norwich Castle Museum now yeah again oh yes again Emmett Jackson sent me um the book on the collection of Norwich Castle Museum and immediately <laughs> I, I sent I sent it back going it's the shirt it's the shirt um so it was fantastic it's and even with Cleopatra you know he wanted to commission his own hieroglyphics he I mean talk about book publicity and marketing he just had it you know <laughs> it's based on a real artifact and um, he just wanted to kind of bring history back to life, but he made sure in his introduction, as I said, that he said this isn't um, a historical novel at all, but I, I take inspiration. But uh, there's a lot of inspiration he took and physically took as well. <laughs> One, as we said earlier, I've, I've, I'm still at this point unable to cross-reference this Percy Fawcett story. You know, Fawcett mm. says that Haggard gave him this strange idol or artifact supposedly mm. from South America. And I, I mean, almost everybody I've seen talking about this online, it, basically you can trace their source back to Fawcett's own book and I haven't seen it anywhere else yet. But mm. the more I find out about Haggard, like th the less weird this sounds, this sounds like something he would do. Mm. Like he, he collected these things and he gave them out to people as gifts all the time. Absolutely. He, yeah. He gave a ring to Wallace Budge at, at some point. Like he, Yes. Yeah. And wow. Rudyard Kipling. And, Kipling. and yeah. yes. And <laughs> it just, yeah, it was as if he wanted to take things for his own, but then just said, oh, here, have a ring, have an Egyptian ring. Um, so it, it wouldn't seem that unusual, uh, to be honest, at all. It, they're, they're this kind of group of people who sometimes you hear something and think, yeah, that seems plausible. Like the mummy in the study. It's yeah, that seems plausible. <laughs> Editing key in here. Haggard told a story that when he was a, a young a youngster, he had a tutor, possibly one of the many tutors 
uh, he was shuffled around between uh, during his years of being a dunderhead at school. Um, and his tutor wore a ring, which he always claimed was given to him by a friend who did some exploration in Latin America. And the story went that this person had broken into a tomb and inside the tomb there was a table with all of these mummified people sitting around the table and at the head of the table was the mummy of an important person wearing this ring which had mysterious figures carved into it and later in life Haggard went to the extent of tracking down this very ring uh, buying it off the owners this provided the impetus for his 1922 novel Virgin of the Sun uh, right um we might move to sort of conclusions and, uh, you know, talk about his, his, his legacy and all, how his interest in Egypt has has shaped things ever since his own days. Yeah, I think he's, I mean, he's known mostly for King Solomon's Mines, but also she. I mean, that was the, as we said, it's one of the biggest selling books of all time. So he has that legacy, but also, you know, he made a footprint on Egyptology by being in who's who in Egyptology. He was recognised, which I think is fair to say. But also he's, you know, one of the very few people who, with lost adventure fiction, was successful with it. Um, and I think it inspired a whole other kind of genre in itself. And, you know, if Percy Fawcett had have come back and written about his adventures, I think that it would have, you know, tr trialed <laughs> Haggard. I mean, the, Haggard and Kipling's relationship is quite interesting because people thought that they wouldn't like each other at all. And it says Kip um, someone said, uh, and I'll get I'll get the source for this, um, that there was only one man that Kipling could could kill and it was Haggard's ego uh, <laughs> which I think is rather funny I mean Kipling even wrote a short mummy story for Haggard um, which is just it, it it's one of those things that, oh yeah of course he did so he he left a legacy of of people that he knew when he inspired them but he's still inspiring people today I think his works are fantastic she is now in its however many uh, biggest reprint um, we have that interesting she film um <laughs> which like is it. worth a watch to be fair it's like worth it. a watch it's <laughs> worth a watch and uh, you know it's inspired me you know he's the reason I've had to change my thesis so I'm blaming him that was <laughs> what I said in my supervisor meeting they said Lauren this is very different to what you originally came with I said right <laughs> this is Haggard's fault take it up with him <laughs> um so yeah he's still inspiring people he's still you know the collections are still there at the museum and I sometimes kind of think the story behind the artifacts can be just as interesting if not more than it I mean these rings are exquisite they look amazing and how they were found in the tombs and in the royal cache it's unbelievable but at the same time Haggard's there and he's putting them in his stories and he's making sure people see them in his photo shoot um so yeah it, it, he's left a very big legacy and everyone knows who he is but I hope they do um, and I hope they read more of his books and his stories because they are fascinating. <laughs> yeah, I feel like he's a, he's an important nexus in the public understanding of of history and archaeology and stuff, and and the mm. intersection between that and like out and out fiction because he seems yes. to like swim between the two, you know, almost without thinking. And you know, he needs to make a physical real thing so he can tell a fictional story about an actual historical period. And he'll mm. pass them around to people. He'll maybe tell stories about them that are bonkers, like the Fawcett story. Who knows? Uh, you know but uh, you know and he, he seems to interpret <laughs> real history then in terms of these kind of romantic fictional stories where 
you know, societies have to be, you know, they have to tell you something important about yourself and they have to tell you something about your empire. You know, the, the, the uh, Egyptian power, you know, political power tells you something about how he felt about the British power and maybe it's coming to an end, you know? So, yeah, it's how, well, it, as you say, it's how the attitudes were changing and he wrote, he wrote what he knew. And I think that's the advice that a lot of authors give to people wanting to break into the industry is write what you know. So he was interested in archaeology. So he wrote about it and he wrote so much romance as well. I thought it was interesting. You made Cleopatra a romance story where they really could have not. He could have gone down a completely different route. But no, he made it this, you know, unrequited love kind of story uh although it was requited in a way it was just uh how the story plays out no spoilers uh <laughs> but it's an interesting way. and with smith and the pharaohs as well this is a reincarnation and i think you know in addition to him wanting howard carter to kind of be the person of smith i think there's a glimpse of his own wanting to oh i wonder if i'm the reincarnated spirit of an ancient Egyptian. he was absolutely gutted that he didn't have any ancestry in ancient egypt which of all the things to be concerned about um but yeah as he said he and he put a lot of egyptian mythology in there and he was just really passionate about ancient Egypt and he just didn't like modern at all. So his legacy is kind of still with ancient Egypt. That's what kind of we associate with him. <laughs> no one ever discovers that they're the reincarnated form of like some inconsequential Egyptian peasant, do they? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, all I, all I did was make bread all day. Um, <laughs> no, it's like he wanted to be royalty. Um, and that was the same for when, you know, he had his trip to Iceland as well. He was always wanted to be a reincarnated spirit of someone very, very important. <laughs> is, there especially any, the is there anything we didn't get around to? Any stories we haven't covered that you'd like oh, to mention? Oh, I'm sure there's absolutely plenty. <laughs> I'm sure there's plenty. He's, I would recommend reading his um, autobiography because it is full, absolutely full um, to the brim. I mean, this is my coffee. It's just absolutely full of stuff. He's one of these people who he'll, he'll say something in passing and then won't say any more on it, which is, which is gutting. Um, so, I mean, just speaking of, of Smith and the Pharaohs, he, in his autobiography, um, he says, I wrote a series of articles for the Daily Mail about my Egyptian experiences, which have never been republished, which I think is interesting in itself. Um, but he says in, in one of these, however, I dwelt upon the wholesale robbery of the Egyptian tombs and the consequent desecration of the dead who lie therein. And this is written retrospectively. So obviously he's already had his fight with Carter uh, and the newspaper at this point. So you kind of have to take it with a pinch of salt. But it says it does indeed seem wrong that people with whom it was the first article of religion that their mortal remains should lie undisturbed until the day of resurrection. And then he goes on and on and on about this um, this concept. And it's as if he's gone off on a really big tangent. <laughs> um, and uh, he says, I have often seen those of the Egyptians naked and unsightly on the sand uh, at the mouths of the holy <laughs> sectors, which will which with toil and cost they had prepared for themselves in their life day. He just just goes on and on and on. And um, he says, I have tried to emphasize this point in a little story I've written recently under the title of Smith and the Pharaoh. So it's just a great big publicity push <laughs> as well. Because um, this was written, well, it, some of it was written um, prior to his fight with Carter. Some of it was written after it, it was 
published after his death. So the whole thing collated was kind of written over so many years. And I think it's interesting that his daughter, um, Lilius, has also taken to writing the autobiography as well. Um, because it's just, I think it's nice. And in a way, I don't take it with a pinch of salt because it's just so interesting. Um, it's it's one of those things where he's kind of living through his daughters at this point. And I mean, he lost his son, uh, Jock, from measles when he was 10. So he's really wanting his children to be invested in ancient Egypt and his passions. And I think it's nice that his um, daughter kind of mentions things that might not be mentioned. So. Uh, he writes a bundle of letters to his dearest Lou, um, written during those many and varied travels, and uh, often brief with a graphic uh, with a graphic pen and a domestic side to his adventures. And I would love to get my hands on those letters. I want to know what he told her and what things he hasn't said, like what all the things that he's omitted. Um, he, I just think it's brilliant, and I love. Uh, I mean, again, Lilius mentioned <laughs> uh, about his luggage in, in, in after years traveling with their parents, his children became quite accustomed to this disaster because Ryder was known to travel anywhere without losing his luggage, <laughs> which I just think is brilliant. It started <laughs> off everything. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's tons of stuff that I would love to get my hands on. Uh, lots of little anecdotes, as you say, about, you know, they may seem strange. And then the more you learn about these people, it doesn't seem that strange at all. <laughs> Lauren, that's tremendous. I'm, I'm super lucky to have your <laughs> your thoughts on this. This is a great subject. I've, I've been waiting for a long time to get around to it. So it, it's been lots of fun. Would you like to say one more time that places people can find you online and like what would you like people to go and check out that you've been doing? Oh, yes, absolutely. So um, you can find me online at Gothic Bookworm. That's on Instagram and Twitter. And uh, obviously that's for a lot of my Gothic and horror <laughs> exploits. But um also i'm uh, mummy mania facts on twitter and mummy mania mondays on instagram and i post uh, i kind of post all the time on mummy mania mondays it's supposed and i do a project um at one monday at the end or at the start of the month and then that's kind of the month's theme i'm also uh, editor and creator of the anatomy shelf so please sign up to that it's the anatomy shelf.substack.com and i'm really looking for submissions as well i'd love people to get in touch so uh, we'll put the links below uh, and everything but it's the anatomy shelf at gmail.com as well so please come check that out <laughs> that's perfect lauren thanks so much thank you And that is it for this episode, folks. Uh, once again, you can find us online over at Twitter. We are at Strange Ireland. And over on Instagram, we are Irish underscore cryptid underscore dude. And don't forget, you can support us with a nice one-off donation over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wide Atlantic. And as always, stay safe and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.